In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, um, now this, this new carpet up here in the pulpit has a pad underneath it. So, um, you know, I used to cut off the sermons at like 17 or 18 minutes because my knees started to hurt. Um, but now I don't have that problem anymore. So, um, you know, I only have about a thousand words, but I might preach a thousand more. Just we'll see how we go here. Okay. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm going to stick to the script more or less. The point of Romans seven verses one through four is this. And actually, before I say that, I'm a little ahead of myself. Visitors, if, if you're just joining us today for the first time in a while or for the first time ever, we are uh, a few weeks into this sermon series on the book of Romans. We're marching through Romans um, section by section. And last week we heard from Romans 6, the Apostle Paul is, is telling this church in Rome that he hasn't visited, but he hopes to visit them. He's basically explaining the gospel to them. And there are Jewish believers there and there are Gentile believers there. And so he's... He's really laying out kind of a, a, the closest thing to like a systematic theology, a, a presentation of the, the theology of the church, what we believe because of what Jesus has done for us that we find within Scripture. Sometimes the book of Romans is called like the fifth gospel. You might have heard of the Romans road, right? You can, you can basically bring a person to saving faith in Jesus just with Scripture quotations and discussion and prayer, right? From the book of Romans. So last week in chapter 6, after Paul has established, friends, if you've been baptized into Jesus, you were baptized into his death. And you were raised with him to newness of life, just as he was raised from the dead and now lives forever. And that means some things for us. Right? God's forgiveness, his full plenary forgiveness and grace and mercy on us, Washing away our sin, canceling the record of debt against us, is not a license to live however we want to. It's not a license to say, oh, you know, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but <clears throat> I can count on the fact that God will forgive me. So I'll just presume on his mercy, presume on his kindness, and uh, kind of just do what I want to do, even though, you know, I'll I guess I'll have to go to church this Sunday and, you know, get communion. Um, it's not meant to be a transactional thing like that. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so Paul says in Romans 6, the latter half of Romans 6, don't present your bodies as obedient servants to sin. Keep an eye on what you watch. Keep an eye on what you listen to. Pay attention to the things you pay attention to, to the things you do, the ways you spend your time. Don't present your bodies as obedient servants to things that only will lead to death. Instead, you've been set free from your slavery to sin, and you've been set free into another kind of slavery or servanthood, serving the living God as we were made to, as Adam and Eve did in the garden before they fell into sin. We weren't made to just kind of be king of our own little hill and sit on the throne of our hearts. We are not the creator. We are creatures bound by the will of our creator. But that might sound like a drag, especially here as we're close to Independence Day in America. What do you mean I'm set free to be a servant? I thought I had this, you know, God-given thing to pursue life. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, 
Martin Luther put it like this. Um, a Christian is totally free, slave to none. A Christian is also servant to all. Christian love would have us pour out our lives in love and service to our neighbors. And uh, in the Lutheran tradition, we use this word neighbors to mean everybody else in our lives that's not us. That's the life we're called into. And so now in Romans 7, we pick up the thread here. The point of Romans 7, 1 through 4, and if you want to follow along in the back of your bulletin, you can. It's a different translation than the one we've been using for the readings. Um, and the reason for that is the ESV, which is printed for you here, the English Standard Version, um, is unfortunately not really the standard English version. You know what I mean? It's not really the way people talk. Um, it's kind of a modern-day King James, and so it's very kind of noble in spirit, and the, there are kind of, there's kind of a poetic beauty to the language, um, but sometimes it's just hard to read. Like, what, what does some of this stuff even mean? You get the impression sometimes in reading Romans especially that the Apostle Paul could have used an editor uh, because he kind of, is he, is he saying this again? Didn't he already say this? So we use the New Living Translation, which is more accessible for our readings, but they're both still the Bible, okay? Both still the Word of God. In verses 1 through 4, the first chunk here, Paul is saying this. We have died to the law through our baptism into Christ's death, which means that this law is no longer binding on us. We, our relationship with God's law is changed now that we are believers, that we have been united to Christ through faith, united to Christ through the waters of baptism. It doesn't, the law doesn't have this power over us that it used to have. And what is that power, you might ask? I'll just assume you asked that. <laughs> There's a connection Okay, there's a connection between the law and being in the flesh or being controlled by our own nature. He's, he says, while we were living in the flesh, in verse 5, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While we were in the flesh, that is, before we were baptized into Christ, before we received the Holy Spirit, while we were controlled by our own nature, God's holy and perfect law just worked up within us our sinful desires, and our old self produced quite a crop of wickedness. Did you know you're all farmers? Everybody's a farmer. Everyone's old nature meets the law of God and produces a mighty crop. But it's not a good crop. It's a crop of wickedness. A harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. Okay, that's our old relationship with the law. Now, because we have died to the law, we're like someone, Paul uses this example of marriage, right? Wedding vows, they're these great, noble, solemn promises, and they end like this, until death parts us. Until death us do part, sometimes. That old relationship between our old nature, sinful desires, and God's law is now broken because we died to that. Just like marriage vows are binding only as long as both people are alive. But when death comes, that law that binds those two people together in matrimony is dissolved. It's no longer binding on them. We now have the ability to resist and struggle against 
our sinful desires that the law might arouse. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again this week, because it is worth saying every time we're talking about this, how do we live the Christian life? The Christian life, you're not called to be perfect. You don't demonstrate that you are a Christian by living a life free of sin. You might remember that Martin Luther wrote 95 theses and nailed them to the door of the castle church in, in Wittenberg. And right at the top of that list of 95 things that he wanted to have a kind of a scholarly debate on was this. When Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, he meant that the whole life was one of repentance. Every day we are repenting. Every day we need forgiveness because every day we still sin. So in this conversation about the law and fighting against sinful desires within us, I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, I've, my life doesn't actually reflect a very victorious struggle against sin. And now I'm wondering if I'm actually saved. I don't want you to feel that. The call here is not to perfection, but to a struggle. Or you could put it like this. We don't just surrender to sin anymore. We don't just wave the white flag saying, okay, whatever, I'll just give in and sin again. When we're tempted, we fight. We struggle. We pull hard against that rope, right? And think about it like a tug of war. And you're not supposed to do this, right? And they told me in high school, you're never supposed to like wrap your arm around the thing because you're going to, you know, if that, if that rope really pulls hard the other way, you might, um, your arm's going to look kind of different after that. But just think about maybe you're, you're trying to cinch something down real tight and you maybe wrap it around your hand once and you know when you're really pulling tight how that kind of pulls into your skin and then your skin kind of goes white and then if, it's, if you're pulling hard enough against it, you might start to break the skin, right? It's a struggle. It's a struggle against sin that we're called to. Not under our own strength, but because we've been released from the law's power. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. You're no longer captive to its power. Now, he says, we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. Let's compare these two. Obeying the letter of the law, that's the old way of serving God, and that looks like this. In view of what the blessings are for obedience and the punishments for disobedience, we work to stay on God's good side. We've got to make sure we know, okay, what are the Ten Commandments? What are all the other prescriptions in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy? And how can we stay on the right side of God's righteousness? And if we mess up, what do we have to do then in order to get back on the right side? It turns out that without the new birth of water in the spirit, the law just arouses sinful desires within us and produces this harvest of sin that leads to death. You might be familiar with this thing where um, parents or grandparents or, you know, if you have nieces and nephews, if you tell a kid, hey, do not climb up on that coffee table, what are they going to do? They're going to climb up on the coffee table. The law produces, and, and in, <laughs> what is that in that child's heart? The same sin that's in your heart. 
laws just give us new ways of sinning against them. We'll hear this from Paul next week because we're in Romans 7 again next week, the latter part of the chapter. But when the law says don't covet, all of a sudden, man, we start coveting. When the law says do not murder, and by extension, Jesus says you can't even have contempt for anyone else. You can't hold hate within your heart for anyone else, wishing that they would die. All of a sudden, you become very aware of all the people who you just really wish would go away. The law, without the Holy Spirit's power within us, without the new birth, just gives us more ways to sin. Now, contrast that. That's the old way of serving God, obeying the letter of the law. I'm losing my microphone here. The new way of serving God by living in the Spirit is this. In view, not of what the rewards and punishments are, but in view of what Christ has done for us. And because of the new birth of water and the Spirit, because you do have a new heart through Jesus' work on the cross, because he left the grave behind, because he rose to new life and ascended to the Father and even now is there praying for us. And he's given us his spirit to live in our hearts. We now give the reins to our new heart and we allow God's love to move us into action to love and serve others in our lives. If you're following us on Facebook, if you're part of our Facebook group, you might have seen that I posted this clip from the movie Sea Biscuit. Did anybody watch that? Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Deb. All right, the rest of you. Just, yeah, okay, cool. Thanks, Chris. Here's the context, okay? Seabiscuit, this famous racehorse. America fell in love with this horse in the Great Depression. And Seabiscuit's jockey, a guy named Red Pollard, was working another horse that saw something and got spooked and broke out through the stables and totally shattered this jockey's leg. So he's laid up in the hospital, and he's not able to race. He's not able to, to ride Seabiscuit in this match of the century. It's this match race between War Admiral, who's kind of a, another legendary racehorse, and Seabiscuit. And it's at the, uh, it's at the Pimlico, whatever, all those details. Just watch the movie. It's a good movie. Okay, Tobey Maguire plays, the, plays the, the jockey. And they're having this conversation the night before the race. And Toby says, shut the door. I need to talk to you about this. They're talking strategy. Because his friend now has to ride this horse in the race of the century. And, and this jockey who's familiar with Seabiscuit wants to make clear that he understands this. He says, you got to fight for the lead from the start, but then in the backstretch, you got to give the lead up. What? Give up the lead? He says, give back the lead. He fights for it, George. If you bring him head to head with that other horse and he looks him in the eye, there's no way he loses that race. You just hold him through that final turn, let him get a good look at the Admiral, and then let him go. It's not in his feet, Georgie. It's right here. Seabiscuit was a horse that didn't run with his feet. He ran with his heart. Paul says we're set free from this old way of obeying God by running the race with our feet, 
by focusing on our deeds, by trying to be on the right side of the law, by knowing all of the regulations and doing all the right stuff and making sure we're above board and everything's perfect and right. And he says, no, now you serve God by living in the spirit. Now we run the race with our heart. Because we have a heart that responds to the goodness of God. We have a heart that responds to the love of Jesus for us and for the love of Jesus, to the love of Jesus for everyone else in our lives. So then is the law bad? Like, oh, thank God we're set free from that law. Let's get that thing out of here. Boy, that law must be terrible, huh? Well, actually, no. In order that we don't get the idea that the law of God is a good thing to be free from, Paul continues like this. He says, well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died because sin leads to death, right? So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, that's the promise from Deuteronomy. If you obey these things, they will bring life. Instead, they brought spiritual death. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. The problem then isn't with the law. The problem is you and me. The problem is the sin, more specifically, within you and within me. The law's commands are good and holy. In fact, there's a hymn in our hymnal, and I'm pretty sure we're actually singing it next week. So this is one of those preview situations. It puts it like this. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. There it is. The law is good. But the law's holiness, when it comes into contact with our unholiness, condemns us. We're going to hear more about this next week, and I don't want to get too far into that now, so we're going to let another stanza from that hymn kind of bring us to our, you know, around the final corner here. To those who help in Christ have found and would in works of love abound, it shows what deeds are his delight and should be done as good and right. You who have been baptized into Christ have a new relationship with God's law. You're free from its demands because Jesus has satisfied those demands by his perfect life for you. You're free from the law's condemnation against your sins. Maybe the things you're thinking about right now, the things from this past week, things from years ago, things maybe you still feel shame about. Jesus took all of that with him to the cross, every little residual aspect of your sin, and he wiped that record clean for you because he loves you. You're free from the sentence of death and wrath and eternal punishment because Jesus suffered that on the cross in your place. So now, go and sin all you want because your tab is covered, right? That guy is paid for it. So, I mean, whatever. It's like a blank check, right? Absolutely not. In seminary, they told us that me genoito, which is Greek for may it never be, um, is actually so strong that you, you probably can't actually say from the pulpit 
in contemporary English um, what that means. So I'll just let you fill in the blanks there. Absolutely not. May it never be. May it never even be thought of among God's people. That we can just go and do whatever we want because our sin is paid for. Lutherans, right, we have such a strong grasp on grace, and thank God for that. Right? The core, the hub of the wheel for all Christian doctrine is justification by grace through faith. But we also believe, teach, and confess that good works necessarily are produced by faith that is real, by faith that is alive. James is still in the Bible. Luther didn't try to take James out. Don't let anybody tell you that. Faith without works is dead, James said. And dead faith doesn't save. You don't earn your salvation by works. It's by grace we are saved through faith. But don't fool yourself. You cannot believe the gospel without repenting. In our gospel reading from this morning, Jesus says, if, I mean, listen to this again. This is pretty intense. If you love your father or your mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. You're not one of mine, he says. If you love your son or your daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Jesus did not come to offer a benefit that fits neatly within the rest of the life that you built for yourself to make you feel good about everything else. He, claim, he came to claim lordship over your entire existence. Your relationship with your family members, your parents, your children. If you don't love Jesus more than them, he says, you're not worthy of being mine. The call is costly. It is costly. But the salvation is free. You've been saved from something, namely sin, death, and the devil. And you've been saved to something. Righteousness, eternal life, and the God who loved you, loves you still, and gave himself for you. So now your relationship with the law is that it guides you. It shows what deeds are God's delight and should be done as good and right. Work on that with your kids around the dinner table this week. The law shows what deeds are God's delight and should be done as good and right. So we can, on one hand, thank and praise Jesus from setting us free from the law through his death and resurrection that we participate in through our baptism and through faith. And on the other hand, we thank and praise God for telling us what kind of fruit we should expect to bear. The same function that the law had when we were controlled by our old self where we didn't know coveting was wrong until the law came and said, don't covet. And then all of a sudden, we're guilty of coveting in all kinds of ways. Now that we have the new nature, it's not just go and love and go and be righteous and holy. We actually have a guide in the law. The commandments that once meant a death sentence for us now reveal to us what true life looks like. Not freedom to do whatever we personally feel like doing and everyone else and their opinions, well, we can tell them where to go. No, that's not the life that Jesus calls us to. Freedom instead to say yes to the impulses of God's love that are poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. Freedom from sin, freedom to be obedient to our God. 
the psalm for today that we didn't read in our service, but it ends like this. The very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. May the Holy Spirit keep us in those regulations now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.